Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negeb. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we are right now looking to you. We have come this morning because we want to hear from you. We want to grow in knowing you. We want to grow in walking with you. We want to become more and more a people devoted to you. We want to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we know that, that only you can change us. Only you can work within us to bring out that kind of love, the kind of hope, the kind of joy that we know we should have. And so we're looking to you, God, come and speak by your Spirit. Open our eyes, open our hearts, open our ears so that we hear your voice this morning. And so we turn to you, and I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've been coming the last few weeks, you know that, that each Sunday we're taking one psalm from a 15-psalm a collection in the book of Psalms called the, the Songs of Ascent. And the reason why they're called Songs of Ascent is because they were songs that the people of Israel would sing as they ascended to Jerusalem, as they went up to Jerusalem year after year for the annual festivals. They would, this is like their, their road trip mixtape. These are the songs that they wanted in their ears and on their hearts as they prepared to worship the Lord together, as they went up to Jerusalem. These songs recall what God has done for his people in the past and who he is for them, what, what he's like, what he's doing, what they can expect from him in their lives, whether they're in Jerusalem or at home or doing whatever they do, who God is for his people. And last week we saw, we looked at Psalm 121, and that said that God is our keeper, that he's our defender, he's our protector, he's the one who guards our life when we go out and when we come in. And we saw that trusting him as our keeper, it leads to a life of peace, a life of restful confidence in him. We can have peaceful hearts because he's keeping us, he's guarding our steps. And in Psalm 126, we're going to see that God is our restorer. He's the restorer of our joy. Now, if, if you're a Christian, you know that joy is important, right? It's part of the fruit that the Holy Spirit bears in our lives. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness, and so on. When we've heard Paul, the Apostle Paul, say, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. We know that joy is important, but if you've been a Christian for a while, you, you also know there are times when you just don't have it. Some of you are there now, and the rest of us are going to be there someday, and so we want to look to this psalm, we want to let it be our guide this morning to experiencing God as the restorer of our joy. So we're going we're gonna to see in this passage three truths about joy and four ways to seek it. And some of you guys are doing the math and you're saying, seven points? There aren't, there aren't even seven verses in this psalm. Where is he going to get seven points? Now, first of all, no, it's two points, right? If you look on your bulletin, it's two points. Second of all, come on. This, I've got like three sermons left. I've got a lot I want to say. I'm just cramming it in, right? So three truths about joy, four ways to seek it. 
And let's get started. The first, we're going to look at the three truths about joy. And the first one is, there is real joy in being God's people. So look at verses 1 and 2. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. As God's people would sing this song on their way up to Jerusalem, they would look back on a time when they had experienced such an incredible deliverance, such a profound work of God, that it, it, they laughed and shouted for joy. Their mouth was filled with laughter, he says, their tongue with shouts of joy. Now, I can only remember one time in my life when I ever shouted for joy, and to my shame, it didn't happen in church, it happened through a basketball game, okay? So we, my friends and I, we had done this spring break trip to Florida, we were coming back, driving through the night back to our university, and we were trying to find a place we could stop for dinner where we could watch a basketball game, because our, our university team was in the, the National College Basketball Championship, and they were playing for a spot in the final four, the best four teams in the country. So we stopped in this little town in Kentucky, and we found a pizza buffet that had some TVs, and so we, we watched this game, and with five minutes to go in the game, our team was down by 15 points, which is a lot for a game like that. But they just, they just found another gear, they dug in, they tied the game, sent it into overtime, and won and it was so unexpected. It was, I mean, we thought they were just down for the count. We were just going to pay our bill and get on the road. We thought it was over. And then from nowhere, they won this game. They went to the Final Four. They went to the National Championship. It was so unexpected that I, I went outside the restaurant, and I just yelled into the Kentucky sky. I just shouted for joy, okay? These, these people in this psalm, they were remembering a time when they experienced something so thrilling so unexpected that the, the only thing they could do was just laugh and shout for joy. So what was it? Most scholars think that they're not absolutely sure, but a lot of scholars think that it's looking back on something called the Babylonian captivity. Okay, so if, if the Babylonian captivity doesn't call something to mind right away, let me just give you kind of a, a refresher on that. So remember the history of God's people, right? God had brought his people out of slavery in Egypt, and he'd given them a land for their own, right? The, the promised land, a land where they would have peace, and he made a covenant with them. You remember the covenant at Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments. God said, I've rescued you out of slavery. I've saved you by grace. Now, if you will obey me, if you'll keep my laws, if you will, if you will love me more than you love anything else, then you will be my treasured people, and I will do you good in this land. But if you turn from me, if you break my covenant, if you turn your heart to other gods, if you just treat me like a means to an end, then I'm going to send you out of this land I've given you. And so God's people were in the land, and, and exactly that began to happen. They, they, their hearts cooled towards the Lord. They, they went after other gods. They, they treated God like a means to an end. They just used him for stuff, but they didn't love him most. And so God sent them prophets, prophet after prophet, who said, return to the Lord, return to the Lord, and they wouldn't. And so eventually, exactly what God said would happen did happen. He sent the Babylonian Empire from far away to take the people into exile, to take them into captivity, thousands of miles from their home. And so they, they thought they would never see their homes again. They thought, that, they thought it was the end for them. They had broken the covenant. They had turned from the Lord. They, he had just turned his back on them. They thought it was over. And then, beyond expectation, God did something amazing. He worked in the heart of the pagan king 
who, who he put it in his heart to send the people home, to send them back to Jerusalem, to rebuild the city, to rebuild the temple, to rebuild their life there. And so you just imagine these people. They thought it was over. And then the next morning, they find themselves waking up in their own beds, go into the temple to worship. You, you just imagine them seeing each other at the well, getting water, and they just laugh. Can you believe this? Can you believe that he brought us home? We didn't deserve this. Can you believe that he's done this for us? They would just shout with joy. It says that they were like those who dream. It just seemed too good to be real. And it was such an amazing intervention that even the nations around them took notice. Look at the end of verse 2. Then they said, among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Now that, that may be the background of the psalm, but it hasn't been written just for people who experience that. It's been written generally enough so any one of God's people can enter into this and sing it. All of God's people can look back and say, God has done great things for us. And for some of you, some of you have experienced God answering prayer in such concrete, unmistakable ways that you, you knew it was the Lord, right? You, God gave you a healthy pregnancy when the odds were against it. He provided a godly spouse when you had given up hope for marriage. He provided a job at the last minute when you thought you were going to have to leave island. But some of you can't look back and, and say, here's that concrete deliverance that God did in my life, but every Christian has experienced something even greater. Because God saved you, right? If you're a Christian, you know that God gave his son's life so you could be forgiven, so you could be brought home to him. He came after you. He, he gave you new life. He changed your life to the point where people around you would have taken notice and said, something's different about this guy. Something's different in her life, right? Aren't there times that just amazes you? God has done great things for us. There's real joy in being his people, being the objects of his love, the people in whose lives he works. But the second truth is the joy of God's people ebbs and flows, right? There's a repeated word in verse 2. He says, then, then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for us. Then, what about now? What's their current experience? Is, are, they, are they laughing and shouting for joy now? No, if you look at verses 5 and 6, their current experience is not laughter. Their current experience is tears. That's why in verse 4, he turns what he said in verse 1 into a prayer. So in verse 1, he said, the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. And in verse 4, he says, he turns it into a prayer. He says, restore our fortunes, O Lord. Do now what you did then. Restore us. Restore our joy. So if you're a new Christian, this is really important to know. Joy is real, but it ebbs and flows. There are seasons to the Christian life, and part of that is our fault. There are seasons in which we pursue God less earnestly. That just other things become more important to us than him, and our, our joy dips. We, we move away from the fire and wonder why we've gotten cold. But there are also seasons to joy because of life circumstances. So just because we've trusted in Jesus hasn't just brought us miraculously out of the reality of living in a fallen world. Christians lose their jobs. Christians get sick. We get depressed. Our kids rebel just like everybody else's kids. We get knocked flat by grief just like anyone else would. There are times when real Christians feel like they, they go to their Bible and they're just getting nothing out of it. They're just totally dry. 
There are seasons in which God's work is unmistakable. You see him answering prayer. You see him changing you from the inside out. You see him using you to bring people to faith. And, and sometimes you don't see him. His work is quiet and it's hidden and you only see it looking back on it. There are seasons, and we spoke about this when we were, we were going through Romans and Romans 5 and Romans 8. There are seasons in which the way God is working in our life is through suffering, is through hard things that make us turn and put our hope in him. In those seasons, we're not laughing and shouting for joy. We're saying, restore our fortunes. Have mercy on us. God, come back. Joy ebbs and flows. It's like the tide, right? So um, a lot of times, especially now that we're getting towards our end in Cayman, we, I take the boys out after dinner and we go down to the beach and I just, I just want them to get all the ocean they can before we head back to the Midwest. So we go to West Bay Beach and and there's a, there's a little place there, there's some iron shore, and there's a place where if the tide is high, the water rolls in, it creates this little pool, and there are like little sergeant majors in the pool, and they want to try to like catch the sergeant majors. They never do, they're too quick, but this, it's super fun for them, right? But if, tide, if the tide is low, there's no pool there, right? But we have never once gone to the beach and found the ocean empty, right? The tide is high, the tide is low, it ebbs and flows, but it never runs out, and that's how... Joy is, right? There are times when it's high, there are times when it's low, but it never, it never for a Christian leaves us completely. But it ebbs and flows. And that's, that's what we'd expect watching the life of Jesus, right? Jesus was perfect. And, and the Gospels tell us that he rejoiced. And the Gospels told it, they, they tell us that he wept. That he was a man of sorrows. There's real laughter in the life of faith, but there are also tears, so what do we do in a season of tears, in a season where joy is at low ebb? Well, there's hope for us in Psalm 126, because the third truth is that joy can be sought and restored. Look at verse 5. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. The psalmist is not, when he writes this, he's not shouting for joy, but he knows that he will again. He knows that God can restore his fortunes, can renew his joy, which is why he prays in verse 4, restore us. The psalm was written for people who know what the joy of the Lord is and know that they aren't experiencing it the way they want to. It's, it's written for people who want God to restore their joy. Joy can be sought, and it can be restored, and this, this psalm tells us how to seek it. So we've seen three truths about joy, and now four ways to seek it. And the first is to remember now, I want you to see the relationship between verses 1 and 2 in the psalm and verse 3, right? In verses 1 and 2, he's remembering this incredible restoration. He's remembering how they were like those who dream. He's remembering how their mouth was filled with laughter. He's remembering how the nation said the Lord has done great things for them. And the effect of that remembering is that he can say in verse 3, the Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. So even though his circumstances haven't changed, just remembering what God has done has brought a new gladness to his heart, has brought him a renewal of joy. Now, some of you are incredibly intentional about journaling, right? You just you have some time every day where you write down what God is teaching you and what God has done, and that's, that's amazing because then you'll be able to look back on that in the future at times when you're dry, at times you don't see him working, and you can remember what he said to you and what he did. So some of you are great at journaling. Some of you have children, and you don't even have time to shower, much less to journal. But even you can take some time, maybe alone, maybe with your kids, to just call to mind the times you knew God was working, 
when you knew he was with you, when you could see his hand and sense his love, you can tell those stories and remember that he hasn't changed. And even if things are so dark that you can't think of a single time God has intervened in your life, every Christian can look back on the cross and say, the Lord has done great things for us. You can remember that you were dead in your sins. You were utterly hopeless. You were running from God towards hell as fast as you could, and he stopped you, and he turned you to himself, and he said, I love you so much that I gave my son's life so you can be forgiven, so you can become my child, and I'm just calling you to trust me. And just like that, he made you alive. He made you his own forever. No intervention in history compares to that. So when you wonder, where is God? Why isn't he working? Why can't I see him? Remember that he's the God who gave his son for you and be reassured that whatever it is he's doing, he's doing in love. We can have joy even in dry times by remembering what, what he has done. Now, and remembering is a huge part of, of why we gather like this every Sunday. We remember, we sing, right? We, we sang glorious day. We remembered how he called us out of the grave. We remember what he's done in our lives. We open the Bible together and we see all the things that God has done. We take the Lord's Supper together, which we're going to do this morning, and we remember his body and his blood given for us. That's why we gather. We gather in part just to remember what God has done so it restores our joy. So the first way to seek joy is to remember, and the second is to ask. Look at verse 4. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. So as the psalmist remembers how God has restored in the past, he asks him to do it again. He says, restore us like streams in the Negev. Now, what does that mean? The Negev is this dry, arid part in the south of Israel. It's, it's like a desert most of the year. It's incredibly dry, and it's covered with these what are called wadis, which are gullies, kind of dry stream beds. And you, if you came across it, you would think, it hasn't rained here in a hundred years. But but every once in a while, it does rain. And those wadis, they fill up with water. They become torrents of water. They become streams in the desert. And when there's enough water, the Negev can just bloom overnight. A, a storm in the Negev can turn the desert into a garden. And that's what the psalmist is praying for. He's saying, God, restore our fortunes. Change our lives overnight. Turn my desert into a garden. The other night, I was reading with my kids before bed, and one of my sons told me, he said, Dad, God could kill you like that. And I was a little disturbed by that, but it was, it was theologically sound. And so I said, that's right, buddy. He could, he could kill me like that. He could do anything like that, right? That's the Lord. The Lord could do anything like that. It doesn't, he could heal you just like that. It doesn't mean he will, but he could. He could change your spouse's hard heart. He can bring your wayward child home. He could bring 100 people to church next week who have never heard the gospel, and he could save them on the spot. He can do it, right? He's the Lord. So why wouldn't we ask him to? Now, one of the most dangerous things we do in spiritually dry times is we, we just stop our spiritual disciplines. We just stop reading the Bible and praying. We, we open the Bible, and the experience of people in the Bible who are experiencing God's nearness, it seems so far from our lives, that it's just painful, and we can just put it away, right? We just, we pray, and we don't feel anything, and we just think, well, this isn't helping, I'm just not going to pray. 
But Psalm 126 tells us that part of our seeking joy is remembering what God has done, which is what the Bible is great for, and part of it is asking him to do it again, which means that dry times are when we most need Bible reading and prayer. Now, it doesn't have to be long, right? If, if all you can do is read a psalm and pray for two minutes and then go on with your day, then just start there. But don't discount what God can do just through being asked because he's the one who told us to ask, right? He inspired this psalm. This prayer, restore us, O Lord, like streams in the Negev, that's, that's God's word. He's telling us to ask. But we don't just ask. The third way to seek joy is to work while you weep. Now look at verses 5 and 6. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Now do you know what those verses prepare us for? Those verses prepare us for the reality that God doesn't always work overnight. He doesn't always turn our desert into a garden. He doesn't always send streams in the Negev. Sometimes the tears linger, and the way he restores our fortunes and restores our joy requires participation on our part, sometimes costly participation, right? There are two pictures here that are complementary, but they're very different, right? In in, in verse 4, it's this picture of a storm that just brings water into the desert. It just changes things overnight. We do It's immediate. We do nothing for it. It comes entirely from the Lord. And the second picture is farming, which isn't overnight. It's slow. It involves waiting. You put your seed in the ground and nothing happens. And you just wait and trust that something's going to grow, that you're going to have something to eat when the time comes. Farming requires tremendous effort and it's absolutely necessary. If you don't sow, you won't reap. So sometimes God restores your fortunes like a storm. You just get a job offer out of the blue, right? Your symptoms just miraculously go away. Your your spouse, her heart changes. She tells you, I'm sorry, I'm ready to work on the marriage. Sometimes it happens like that, right? Sometimes God just changes it. Or maybe your circumstances don't change, but your heart changes. One day, the joy just returns. The depression lifts. The gratitude is there again. He He just changes it overnight. He does that, and that's amazing. And sometimes it's not like that. You ask, and things don't change. Sometimes God's restoration comes through you doing faithfully what you're called to do even though you're sad and you feel alone. You, you just have to work while you weep. You still weep. This passage doesn't say, come on, Christians don't get sad. You've got to stop crying and just be happy. That's, that's not what this passage says. But it also doesn't say, it also doesn't say, if you're sad, you're just relieved of all responsibilities until you feel better. It says, go ahead and weep and lament and grieve, but as you do, take your seed and sow. And trust that in time, God will use your sowing and tears to bring about a harvest with shouts of joy. So in, in what area of your life do you need God to intervene, to restore your fortunes? Maybe you just hate your job. You feel like it's just sucking the life out of you, but you've looked. It seems like there's nothing else. Could God change things just like that? Yes. So ask and keep going to work, doing it faithfully, working as for the Lord and not for men. Or maybe, maybe you're overwhelmed by parenting. You just feel like if God doesn't do something, we're just going to fall apart here. 
Could God change your parenting overnight? Yes. So ask him to break in and keep loving your kids, showing them God's patience, and pointing them to Jesus. You you just got to work while you weep. Maybe someone you love wants nothing to do with Jesus, and you just lie awake at night worrying about what's going to happen to them. Can God change their heart? He changed yours, so ask him and work while you weep. Keep loving them like Jesus and talking about Jesus when you're around them. Joy, joy ebbs and flows, right? It has seasons. The Bible is absolutely realistic about that. It never asks us to pretend like we're just happy all the time. But we also can't let hard times or a downcast heart keep us from faithfully investing our lives in what God has called us to because faithfulness to him is part of what he uses to restore our joy. It's those who sow in tears, who reap with shouts of joy, and we will reap. That confidence is our fourth way to seek joy, which is trust while you wait. We have to work while we weep, and we have to trust while we wait. Now just look at the confidence the psalmist has gained by the time he gets to verses 5 and 6. He says, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy, not might, but shall. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy. It's going to happen. Hard times won't last. The life of faith has both laughter and tears, but laughter wins out in the end. Joy gets the last word. All of us are going to go through seasons where it feels like God is hiding himself, like he's not working, like he's not there. And we're all going to go through seasons where we need him to restore us and feel like he's taken too long. But he is with us, and he is working. Our story doesn't end there. And if we continue to sow, even through tears, we will reap joy in the end. God will restore our fortunes and our joy, although the restoration is not going to be complete until Jesus comes, right? Until Jesus comes and he makes all things new. He rids the world of sin and sorrow and sickness and death. In the new creation, joy will not ebb and flow. It won't have seasons anymore. But until then, we're going to have seasons of laughter and seasons of tears, and we have to trust God enough to keep planting, to keep sowing our seed, to keep working, to keep being faithful to him in whatever season we're in. Now, Sunrise, Sunrise is a young church. Okay, I, Adam has this new computer program that like, kind of charts your birthdays, and so we have this demographic data. The largest age demographic in Sunrise is people 26 to 35 years old. Okay, It's a young church. I'm going to be 36 in July. I am almost over the hill at Sunrise. This is a young church, and there are lots of things that are, are good about being a young church but young people are not notorious for their patience and their perseverance. And I'm sorry to say it, but it's the old age speaking. It's not what young people are known for. If we want to be a church that sees God really work in our midst, saving marriages, changing lives, providing for needs, intervening, if we want to be a church where we really see God work through us, bringing people to faith in Christ, changing came man, changing our community with the gospel. If we want to see God work like that, we're going to have to be a patient and persevering people. We have to expect tears. And when they come, we, can't, we don't need to deny that. We don't need to pretend like we're fine. It's okay to weep, but when we're weeping, we need to push through. We can't let tears derail our faithfulness to Christ. We can't be people who just evaporate 
from community group and from Sunday mornings when we come through something hard. We can't just be people who put away the Bible and put away prayer until we feel better. We need to be people who press into those things more in hard times, more when joy is at low ebb. And the only way we'll do that is if we trust that that's what God's going to use to bring us into shouts of joy. Trust that it's the remembering and the asking and the working while we weep, and it's through that that God brings about his harvest. But trusting is hard, right? How can we grow in faith? You'll be able to trust God for your harvest when you see what he's done to make you his harvest. So I need you to follow me here. In John 12, verse 24, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So the way Jesus understood his own death was as a seed falling into the ground and dying. He said, if, unless I die, I remain alone. But if I die, if I give my life for my people, if I die in their place, for their sins on the cross, if I die so they can be forgiven, then I'm going to bear much fruit. I'm going to save a people. I'm going to bring many sons to glory. Unless a grain of wheat dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. He says, if I die, I'm going to bring about a harvest. So what did Jesus sow? He sowed himself. And how did he do it? He did it through tears. Right? When Jesus approached Jerusalem, he wept over it. In the garden, right, the night before he died, he cried out that, that God would provide another way. He wept, but he worked in his weeping. He didn't let it derail him. He, as he wept, he did exactly what God called him to do. He gave his life. He remained faithful. He planted himself in death, and then he rose from the dead, and he gathered his harvest. What was his harvest? Is us. We are his harvest. He sowed himself in tears and he brought us home with shouts of joy. We are his harvest. Do you know that? If you know that, if you know that God gave his son so he could bring you home, then of course you can trust him as you wait. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things, right? We are God's harvest. We're his treasure. We're his kids. He's not going to let us down. We can trust him while we wait. The cross is how we know that tears won't have the last word. God will keep us until Jesus comes, and when Jesus comes, he's going to wipe away every tear. Then it's over. But until then, let's be found faithful. Let's seek our joy in God through remembering through asking, working while we weep, and trusting while we wait. Let's pray. Our Father, we, uh, we are in need of you. That is always true. We are always in desperate need of you, God. You are the source of joy. You are the source of hope. You are the source of strength. Everything we need we find in you. And so, God, I, there's, there's no one here who does not need your restoration. There's no one here who does not need you to bring your rain and to make our desert into a garden. We need you.
to bear fruit in us. And so we pray that you would, that you would restore our fortunes like streams in the Negev, that you would come and you would change us and you would bring wonderful things out of our lives. But we also pray that you would make us a faithful people, a people of perseverance, a people who continue to cling to you even when we don't see you, even when we don't feel you, even when we don't We don't know that you are near by our experience. I pray that you would help us to know that you're near by the cross, to know that you're near by your word, that you would make us a people who who sow in tears so that we would together reap with shouts of joy. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.